everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here today with my wife, Stephanie Murray. Drew is out of town, and we're recording an episode on parenting and the effects of different approaches to parenting on society today, broader society. My wife is giggling because she thinks this is uh, this is a funny exercise. Do this as a as a married couple. It's actually our 16th anniversary. Woo-hoo! Happy anniversary, babe! But uh, a joy to be here with my wife to talk about parenting today. Give us a little context, Steph. What's our world look like right now with regards to kids and family? Yes, we have four boys, who, Aiden, who is 11, Paxton, who is 9, almost 10, uh, Mason, who is 8, and Hudson, who is 6. And we, yeah, just a rowdy bunch of boys. I homeschool them two days a week, and we're in a really fun stage of life. Active, loud, noisy in every possible way. And a lot of fun. So amazing wife and mother here sitting next to me. And we've been in two weeks on church history. So this might seem like a funny pivot because we're actually going to go back to church history starting next week, continuing on in the Reformation and then looking at canons, creeds, and heresies. But we've had this this idea for this episode in mind for a little while, looking not at, because like Steph just said, we have younger kids. So we're not purporting to be experts on parenting, that we've seen kids all the way through the development cycle. We are still very much in a learning curve. But we have observed the ways that approaches to parenting have changed over even recent years. And then going back even further, several decades into American history, and those changes in parenting styles are affecting, when we talk about the ideas that are shaping society, the the whole premise of this podcast, Parenting plays into everything that we're seeing, and I think if we can dissect and understand some shifts that have happened in parenting, even understanding our own stories in that light, and then looking at society around us, and, and certainly for the parents who are listening, but this is, this applies, I think, universally, regardless of stage of life or whether we have kids or not, just understanding the, the approaches, the ideas, the methodologies that are shaping society today. I want to say unashamedly, I'm drawing a lot of this content from Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Definitely recommend it. It's certainly they, they certainly lean in one direction politically and socially, and you'll pick up on that as you read the book. But I, I still very much appreciate their observations and their expertise in this regard, looking specifically at the phenomenon on college campuses that we see today towards this you know, notion of safe spaces and the, the hate speech and a lot of the things that are shaping social realities on college campuses today, that's their main area of expertise. But they dip into parenting in terms of what's contributing to the various things that we see on college campuses today as, of course, the formative experience for every child's life before they're sent off to college. And they talk about when they speak on parenting, they talk about the quote-unquote three great untruths or the three great lies that are shaping kids today that are being reinforced by parents at a very young age. And those three great untruths are fragility, emotional reasoning, and us versus them. When they talk about fragility, you've heard the you know, the saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. They would change that to say what's being reinforced today is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. 
When it comes to emotional reasoning, the, the message there is always trust your feelings. And then this us versus them mentality that life is a battle between good, good people and evil people. We are Republicans and Democrats are evil, or we are Democrats and Republicans are evil, or this battle between maskers and anti-maskers and vaccinated people and anti-vaxxers and so on and so forth. There's this binary reasoning and this dichotomizing in society that get, actually starts very on, uh, early on in life. So we're going to just look at these three great untruths and then try to tie this into some of the broader themes that we're unpacking in this podcast around the Christian worldview, the Christian belief system, and the secular belief system. So before we dive in here, and Steph and I didn't sit down and and really compare notes exhaustively before recording this episode. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Steph, as you evaluate just from the posture of a mom of four boys in today's parenting climate, what are you observing in terms of some trends or some challenges as you seek to raise four boys in in today's day and age? Yeah, I want to first say, though, that it's quite humbling even to be talking about this topic because I've often thought that maybe in 30 years when we have the fruit of our life, then I will talk on this topic. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, just the fear of God of like, I hope what we are doing today will bear good fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so my biggest encouragement to parents out there is as you are asking questions and seeking wisdom on this topic, is to look to people who you see the fruit of their life. You've seen their lives laid down and what they have, yeah, just the fruit of their lives. And from that place, then go and ask them your questions or read their books versus, you know, there is a trend of like these younger moms, maybe even myself, uh, people my age, putting stuff out there on how to do stuff. And they are just very much in the battle of it, and you don't know what the fruit will, will be. So my biggest encouragement is to seek out the fruit that you long to have in your kid's life and pursue wisdom in that direction. Find people who have borne the same fruit in their kids. Some of the trends I see today, there's just seems to be this undercurrent of fear, fear of what is my child eating? Are they wearing organic clothing? Are they, do they have like, you know, very neutral colors, not too many bright colors, not too many contrasting things around them? Is it, do they have enough toys or we don't want to have too many toys? Just this thing of wanting to control their kid's environment, their baby's environment, or parenting maybe from a place of fear. You know, I get it. There is such a, that's understandable when you're new in it. But really, there's a safe place to parent from a place of trust when you walk with Jesus. Yeah, and, and, and not to, of course, obviously exercise wisdom, but I hear what you're saying, Steph, to the underlying current of our parenting being one that's, that's coming out of a place of trust and security in God and then applying good wisdom but not over-controlling every facet of a child's environment. And that actually is a great segue into this first quote-unquote untruth and I'll just quote uh, Luke and often hate here for a moment. It said that the first untruth that children are fragile collapses when parents see that kids are, in fact, quote, anti-fragile, able to experiment and take risks so they can learn how to cope with society and the world. Uh, essentially, this idea that children actually need a, a healthy degree of stress. There was an interesting experiment done. You might be familiar with the biosphere projects where there's this highly controlled environment in, I think one of them was in the Arizona desert, Biosphere 2. And the idea is, can we learn how to 
cultivate crops and trees and stuff in a controlled environment like what we would find on the moon or Mars, uh, or even some insights on how to preserve biodiversity here on Earth. And so they have every condition is controlled for. So humidity and temperature and barometric pressure and presence of various bacteria and so on and so forth. And initially, what happened was what you would expect to happen is this lush, green environment where everything is growing and growing at a very fast rate as it's uninhibited by natural predators and diseases and so on. But then what started happening was that the trees began to just fall over and die. And and this really puzzled the researchers as they looked at the causes, you know, how could these trees who live in this perfect environment, how could they be dying prematurely and not coming to the, you know, full stature that they that they could. And what they found was that the absence of wind actually prevented the maturation process. Where in nature, where you have wind and these other stresses, it, it causes the roots to form in a different way to where it anchors the tree in the soil. And the absence of wind uh, didn't enable that process to happen. And so you had these very underdeveloped root systems. So even though above the surface the tree is growing and, and looks lush and healthy, it didn't have its uh, necessary root system, and so they just began to die prematurely. And, and I think that's a good metaphor for raising children, that there needs to be a, a certain amount of stress that is allowed, that is introduced or at least permitted by the parents, as opposed to this biosphere environment where every variable is controlled for Uh, There are some natural stresses that actually strengthen a child where they come across viewpoints that are different from their own or they have to encounter some level of difficulty in social settings with other children or the stresses of having an overbearing teacher or uh, so on and so forth. And of course, even in nature, too much stress can can damage. So like a tornado or a hurricane uproots a tree. And so we don't want that. And so we are protecting our kids from these catastrophic or traumatizing stresses. But I think an overprotection is limiting the developmental process in children, and they're not developing the coping mechanisms needed that when they get out from the home and they get into these highly stressful environments like a college campus or a first job, and they're unable to cope with the stresses. And so you have the rise of safetyism and these safe spaces and microaggressions. And again, not to discount some of the legitimacy behind that terminology, But by and large, a generation that has been struggling to deal with stress probably begins in part in this rise of safetyism among parenting methodologies. These researchers also document an increase in anxiety and depression among the youth today. And and you can look at all the statistics. It's one of the most depressed and anxious generations that's ever lived due to, and they they connect it directly, and these are various sociologists and psychoanalysts, to overprotective parenting, the loss of unstructured playtime, again, the rise of quote-unquote safetyism among school bureaucrats that restricts anything deemed risky, and that could be an idea or an activity or a viewpoint, or the rise of these various movements that demand not merely equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes. And, and we would suggest that these trends tie directly into the shift that we've been describing, the shift from this predominantly Judeo-Christian viewpoint in America to this more dominant, secular, humanistic culture. And again, this is not a political statement, but what I mean by that is within the Judeo-Christian tradition, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is a starting point in terms of the scriptures 
admonitions to parents and in raising children. And I actually want to read that passage. I think it's a significant one relative to this conversation. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, and this is the Shema, if you've heard of that term before. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then this is the relevant part of this passage. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And and the idea here is that we are not as parents getting our children to conform to some internal understanding of themselves as if they possess the requisite wisdom to understand what it means to be fully human. That would be more of a secular idea that there is inherent goodness in us, that anything externally binding, anything that restricts our freedom or our happiness is, is to be avoided. And think back to, as we've talked about, more of a kind of a Freudian approach or a Nietzschean approach to society that were to cast off these externally binding restraints, that that's where the locus of sin is. It's not in the human heart. Whereas the the Christian viewpoint is that we're not trying to conform children into the image of themselves. We're trying to conform or, or some you know image that our society puts forth. We're trying to conform children into the image of God, just as we as disciples of Jesus are doing ourselves. And that requires a process of formation and all throughout the scriptures, you have the, these notions that that process requires discipline. And I'm not just talking like, don't think just punishment, but disciplining the flesh, narrowing our options, restricting our ourselves, the, the ideas of delayed gratification and so on and so forth, that we it requires a degree of stress. Just anybody who works out, you understand this intuitively, that you put your body under a, a measure of stress for the greater benefit of health and strength and and so on. So we subject our children to a degree of stress to conform them to an external image, the image in this case of Jesus himself. To that point, I've seen increasingly so moms come in and say, you know what, don't tell me how you did it. Let me figure it out myself. And the Deuteronomy 6 just talks about the the older passing it on to the younger. And by them and by us as moms as young moms saying no 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 don't tell me how you did it let me figure it out myself we lose a degree of wisdom by doing that and honestly probably experience more pain and more just in the process of trying to figure it out on our own versus going to the people who have gone before us and have borne good fruit and learning from their ways. Yeah, that's a great point. In the background of that are some underlying assumptions about the nature of humanity, the nature of God, the nature of the world. And again, that that we want to remove as many inhibitions. You know, I don't want somebody to tell me how to do something. I need to discover it for myself. Or I don't want to come under someone else's methodologies. That's a, that's a constraint. Um, we don't want to come under these inhibitions so that the natural goodness, my natural goodness, or, or in the case of parenting, the natural goodness of the child has room to flower. Uh, the problem here is that weeds are also growing up with those flowers. Uh, we love our children and they have tremendous potential. There are prophetic words that we have that we pray for each of our kids that we call out in them regularly and they're made in the image of God and we honor them and we value them. And 
though they are good in that they're made in the image of God, their nature is bent because of sin. And so if we just let the natural development process based on their own whims and their own desires, the weeds are growing up with those flowers and the weeds would end up choking out the the growth and the life. And so as gardeners, as those who have been called to tend their souls, to help them develop healthily and, and rightly in accordance with God's way and God's will, that requires, again, some restraint. Kind of a humorous aside, I was in the kitchen the other week, and forgive me if I've shared this on a previous episode, but my nine-year-old Paxton just announced to me out of the blue while we were making lunches, getting ready to go for, to school, he announced that, you know, that he was now an independent man, and those are the words he actually <laughs> used. Dad, I've determined that I am now an independent man. And I said, really? What does that mean to you? He said, well, I get to eat whatever I want whenever I want, and I get to use the phone whenever I want. Play video games, basically, is what he's saying. I said, okay, well, that's fine, as long as you also go get a job and provide for yourself and listed a a list of responsibilities. And he kind of thought about it for a second. He said, no, 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 I'm going to let you do that, and then I still get to do these other things. I said, well, that's not responsibility. Uh, That's not independence. That's entitlement. Entitlement. And that's the very issue that we're dealing with in our work of ministry. And so we're not going to do that in this house. We're not doing entitlement. Yeah, that just reminds me of Mick talking about the weeds growing up with the flowers, that if it really is because of external constraints that our kids are marred, they're just born good people, that I I think about my six-month-old who his 18-month-old brother was kind of pushing on him, and I was about to go over and intercept or interject myself into the situation when I look at my six-month-old who turns and headbutts his brother. I was like, oh my gosh, he really just did that. And just that picture of, I mean, they do, they are bent towards sin, even as a six-month-old, and they need our help to guide them into the narrow path, the path of righteousness. That's right. No, and, I mean, there's actually a movement today, actually, I don't know how popular it is still as we've gotten out of the little kid stage, but quote-unquote unparenting, where we're just going to let this kind of natural process take place. And and that's an, an overreaction to the safetyism where going to control every facet of their environment. The opposite end of that is this unparenting where I'm not going to control anything. And both of those, one parenting out of fear, the other parenting out of just this belief in the natural goodness of the child will take its course. I think both miss the mark when we see this this commission to parents in the scriptures to help our children conform to the image of Jesus. Secondly, Haight and Lukinoff talk about emotional reasoning that there is this belief that we can always trust our feelings because they will lead us to a good outcome. Now, the crazy thing is, I I think almost everybody knows intuitively this is not true, yet our society reinforces this. And this is in line with the broader narrative, again, that if there is no external objective truth, if there's no God, if that we are all gods unto ourselves, and that the self is the ultimate arbiter of truth, then this does make sense. This makes logical sense. But in terms of lived realities, this seems like an empirically verifiable fact that we cannot trust our emotions and our observations about the world and about life being God unto ourselves. This has followed the logical pro- progression from modernism to the fragmentation of society, kind of from reason to non-reason. I hesitate to use the word postmodern because I don't think anybody's truly postmodern, but at least a further fragmentation of society. 
that if man is the end to himself, then meaning is assigned internally and through our experience of the world, which is subjective versus externally derived from a higher source, which is objective. And so as we're raising children, we're seeking to train them to grid their experiences through an external source. And in our case, as followers of Jesus, the scriptures, the wisdom of those who've gone before them, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, as opposed to their own realities. Steph, where have you seen that play out with with our kids, this idea that we're training them to grid reality through a different set of lenses rather than their own experience? Right. I would say we have worked honestly hard, maybe have in some ways created a parented out of fear as we were became new parents and now 11 years in are probably trying to step back a little bit from that to allow them to experience some stress. And so how we do it practically, because our world, even though we try to live narrowly and we try to live simply, our kids are pretty cushioned by going to a private school and living a honestly a pretty wealthy lifestyle. We have committed over the years, we've said we will cover them and protect them until they're able to think for themselves and rationalize and really until they're prepared for the battle set before them. But the way that we want to expose them to the things of God and to the things of the world are in context of relationship. So we've chosen as parents to get out to the nations. We try to once a year, if not more, to expose them to poverty, to expose them to the brokenness of humanity. And so in so doing, they've, they've seen poverty in a real way, and we've, they've been able to ask the hard questions. They've played with the kids in the trash heaps. They have seen prostitution from a, from a distance, and we've gotten to have some real honest conversations, and they have had the opportunity to love on those people, to give what they have in their young worlds to the people in front of them. And we hope that out of that, and we've seen a little bit of the fruit of that by a majority of our kids have chosen to follow Jesus in the nations. Now they're gonna have to work it out and work out their salvation with God. But that is just a small glimpse of, just to answer your question, that's just a small glimpse glimpse of how we have chosen to parent by creating natural stressors through experience and relationship. We're close with them, we're walking through it with them, and we're present with them and able, but giving them space to experience hard things and ask the hard questions. Right, that's great. So we there, there's a degree of stress that we are allowing our children to experience. And then implicit in what you're saying, Steph, is that we are guiding them through the process. So I love the word, word you use was presence. Because a child doesn't have the hardware necessary to interpret what's going on in the world around them. Like when we took our kids to Tijuana, we took them to the, at least our older two, I believe it was, to the red light district. And it was daytime, and and again, it was appropriately distanced and everything else. But I got to have conversations with them about human dignity and and sexuality and prostitution and and how horrible that is. And And the hope that we, we bring in Jesus. Absolutely. And if we expected them to be able to reason that out themselves and to trust their feelings, you know, as an emerging human that is marred by sin, 
then it could lead them in a ditch. And, and I think a lot of times we see parents or, you know, I, I look at my own parenting and I think my tendency is to is to not press in and to have the deep and harder conversations. It's something we've tried to do intentionally. But in, a, in the absence of that, in the vacuum of that, where a child is just allowed to emotionally reason them, their way through life and not have the objectivity of their parents. And then, again, in the case of being a follower of Jesus, our objectivity is coming from the scriptures themselves. And so we are giving our kids a scaffolding, a framework for understanding life, for understanding things like justice and poverty and lostness and these other issues they've experienced in the nations. But then also like at school with the tensions in their friendships and bullying or cliquishness or challenges with their studies. And if, you know, if we allowed them to just ride the roller coaster of their emotions, they would not develop the stable framework they need to deal with the stressors later on in life. And lastly, they talk about this untruth of us versus them, this life is a battle between good and evil people, this polarizing phenomenon that we see in our culture today. And I think a lot of that's because as parents, we think that way. We there Again, we live in such a polarized reality in America today and a lot of the West, not just America where there are these, you know, we're, we're driven by sound bites and we have lost the ability in, in many cases to dialogue and have meaningful exchange of ideas and suspend our assumptions. If you go back to last fall and we talked about suspending assumptions and the three stages of cognitive development, uh, Keegan and Leahy from Harvard, and the higher forms of cognition that are able to hold in tension a lot of different viewpoints while remaining internally intact and whole. Most of us just don't have that hardware was not given to us. And so we're unable to give that to our children. And so we don't help them develop higher levels of cognition and to think more critically that uh, ultimately all of us are broken, that whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, or whether you're a vaxxer or anti-vaxxer, that at the core, all of us are broken and need Jesus. We're all in the same boat there. And then as believers, we're all united in the person of Jesus. And we just don't possess that language and those, those skills. And so our children are picking up on that and, and growing up in this very polarizing landscape. And so they're carrying that into college and then into young adulthood, unable to develop a multi-frame understanding of reality, unable to, again, have meaningful discourse and uh, and not immediately put up walls when their viewpoint is threatened or when something that they hold dear is questioned or examined or analyzed. And we react rather than uh, proactively have conversation that develops deeper unity and preserves the diversity but in our unity. And again, to run this through the, the grid of the different narratives, the Christian narrative and the, the secular narrative, the secular narrative, when you don't have an objective source of truth to arbitrate disputes outside of the self, then you're left with these power differentials and these power struggles that in the absence of an arbiter, which in, again, in our case, the, the scriptures, Jesus himself, the leadership of the spirit, then it becomes a power struggle. And, and you look back at the 20th century, and we've talked in depth about this reality, you know, starting back with the Frankfurt School of Philosophy and critical theory, and you can look back at our conversation with Dr. Crenshaw from last fall. In that regard, looking at where, again, is the locus of brokenness and sin, and that thinking out of the 18th century that it's in these power differentials, that if we just had a classless society, or Nietzschean thought that it's in these oppressive moral systems, or Freudian thought that it's in these repressed sexual urges, and we're always trying to push 
the issue outward. And if you go all the way back to the garden, that was Adam and Eve immediately casting blame instead of taking responsibility and saying, no, 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 I'm part of the problem. I think of, I don't remember who it was in World War I, if it was Thomas Spurgeon or one of the other English preachers at that time, but at the outset of World War I, one of the English newspapers ran an op-ed, one of these editors just kind of thinking out loud and lamenting the state of humanity and just wondering basically who's to blame. I mean, look at the state of Europe today. And this this English preacher wrote back in and said, you know, in, in response to so-and-so's op-ed from such and such date, I have only two words in response, you know, to the question of who's to blame. And his response was, I am. And what he was doing, he was just modeling, taking responsibility. Now, was he personally responsible for, for World War One? No, but he was saying that if we don't stop casting blame, if we can't point the finger inward to the part that we play in bringing our own brokenness to society, that we're 7 billion broken people trying to work this out on this planet we call home, that if we can't do that and take responsibility and be humble enough to own our part, then we're never going to move forward. And so this idea of us versus them and, and training our children to think in this kind of binary framework where it's it's a system of blame instead of, no, 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 we take responsibility. Actually, I won't name our kids right now, but this has been a, a consistent battle recently with one of our kids that there's a dispute. Hey, what, what happened there? Well, he, no, 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 no. What was your part? Well, he, no, no, no. Hey, look, look at me. What did you do? Well, he, and it just over and over and we're trying to train, no, no, no. Yes, he was wrong in what he did, and we will deal with that. But what was your part? Well, actually, yeah, I and training that into ourselves as parents, training that into our kids so that we can have a, a much more rich discourse and still have convictions and, and vote a particular platform. That's great. But be able to do so charitably in a way that we're not tearing down society and tearing down each other, especially in the body of Christ. And even demonstrating that as parents, we often try to come and say, hey guys, mommy was not like Jesus. I yelled and Jesus is slow to anger. Or I was, I disciplined out of anger. Please forgive me. Jesus is kind and gentle. And just this taking ownership, even as myself, as a parent and demonstrating that's why we need a savior and that's why we need someone outside of ourselves because we will fall short every day. That's great. So in summary, you know, where do we go from here as parents, but then even as we just as a community of faith, as we look around at what's going on in society, just a few thoughts in summary. One is that our children need stress. We need stress. We don't need to insulate ourselves from every idea that is contrary to the way that we think. Uh, in the context of parenting, it needs to be the right kind of stress and accompanied by presence, like Steph was saying. Again, there can be a traumatic kind of stress that we want to avoid, but the right amount and the right kind of stress to be molded into the image of Jesus, which again requires resistance. I was just thinking of Romans 5, 3 through 5, which says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If our world needs anything today, it needs hope, and it needs people of character. And the scriptures here say that that character and that hope comes through suffering and endurance. And that is a gift that we can give to our children, to our spiritual children, to ourselves. Secondly, we need to be 
training our children to reason biblically and not just reason emotionally. And man, by extension, we need to learn to reason biblically and not just reason emotionally and trust our feelings and trust our experiences and help one another and help our kids understand the difference between emotional and objective reasoning. And then lastly, as the people of God, we find our unity in Jesus. Life is not uh, an us versus them. We don't unify around ideals or people because ultimately there's no power in that. That leads only to division. There is one who has power. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. His name is Jesus. There's power that when we connect with him, now we have an arbiter for our disputes. Now we have a power, a power source for forgiveness and for humility that makes us allies with other believers and then reconcilers to everyone else. So as we wrap up, any other just last thoughts, babe? I think just more than anything, if I could reach to the mic, it would be to give you a hug and spread the oil of grace. Just when we depend on the person of Jesus, he is so much bigger and better than we could ever imagine. And he has us. The Isaiah 40, 11 was a verse I leaned on. It says, God gently leads those with nursing ewes. He gently leads you as a mom, as a dad, as a child of God, and he's just bigger than our culture. He's bigger than the hardest topic of the day, the biggest stressor of the day. He he has you, um, and if I could just, I wish it could be like a substance and oil that reaches you today, that he is gracious and kind and better than you could ever imagine. Amen. That's a great mama's heart coming through the uh, mic there. And I don't think Drew or I have ever uh, (laughs) expressed that we want to reach through the microphone and just give a hug. So it's probably (laughs) needed more on this podcast. So uh, thanks for jumping in with us on a maybe a seemingly random conversation about parenting and how it's affecting society today. I think it's it's highly relevant. Uh, We will come back to church history and creeds, canons, and heresies here over the next several weeks. Uh, But thanks for tuning in today. Thank you, Steph, for joining us. And we'll catch you next time on Ideology. Nope. No final thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Nope, I'm done. No. I think you I think you wrapped it up well. No no final thoughts. <laughs> I like it. <laughs>